A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Uh, I hope you're having a good summer. Maybe you're li- listening to the podcast on your sun lounger. Let me know. Email me matt.shawley at times.ready. Especially if you want to play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Uh, just, uh, it's only 10 questions. Loosely connect 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the job you get. Uh, taking your place alongside our listeners and guests who come on the show too. So yeah, matt.chorley at times.radio. Let me know where you're listening and if you want to come on to the quiz. Right, coming up on today's episode, a fascinating interview with the Washington Post journalist, Carol Lernig. She's written an incredible book about the Secret Service. You might think they're all serious people in dark glasses and suits speaking to, into their sleeves. They're supposed to be protecting uh, the uh, President of the United States, his family and US officials. Uh, it seems to spend quite a lot of their time drunk and landing intruders into the White House. Uh, a brilliant interview coming up with Carol uh, in just a moment. But first as ever, it's our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. I've, um, I've, I've, I've disappeared myself from, from Twitter Therefore, I'm a non-person yes. uh, with no relevance to the world. You're of no use to us <laughs> at all. We were only, you're only here to harness your huge social media My enormous media Twitter following. Now, explain why have you quit the Twitter? Uh, well, I sort of I have a policy of, um, of quitting every so often um, for various reasons, which I can go into if they're not too boring. But it's usually prompted by uh, everybody getting cross at me. And everyone got, everyone got really angry at me last week because um, I, I contributed a sort of 150 words to an article about... Um, what jobs people had done um, after university, and I wrote about working in a bookshop, uh, and I suggested I may not have necessarily enjoyed every minute of working in a bookshop. Uh, and then, th- I mean, I think literally, literally, probably thousands of people um, started tweeting and liking tweets, uh, implying that I was uh, evil and privileged for not having appreciated this opportunity to the full. And I just thought, this is oh. too, this is too silly. <laughs> this is too silly. And it's also alarming to watch, you know, thousands of people tweet to say what a horrible uh, bastard you are. And it's always a little bit frightening, although I'm getting, I'm getting more and more used to it. Uh, so I was just like, I maybe, maybe I don't need to check my phone and discover that thousands of people think I'm evil. Uh, so I thought I would... Uh, it was a good cue to uh, go into one of my uh, periodic Twitter hibernations. But I also have various other uh, moral and ethical objections to Twitter, which are, uh, you know, probably hopefully deeper, deeper reasons. Um, we should apologise for James's language there. Oh, yeah, uh, sorry. Oh, no. Well, oh, his, God. His Thank people. God I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, India, have you ever been tempted to do this? I'm not on it anymore. Well, I, I still have an account, but I haven't. I use it to tweet a link to my columns on Sundays, but I don't look at it anymore. I am free. It's been oh, about nine, ten months. Wow! And it's really. And I tried lots of times before, and I finally cracked it. 
Uh, and the thing is to just not do it, not even not even sneak a peek, you know, when you're bored or whatever. You find you have lots of moments in the day initially where you're slightly at a loss and you think, well, what would I normally be doing? And the answer, of course, is looking at my phone. Um, so it's really marvellous, James. You will love it. Stick at it. Because I try, because I'm, I'm, off, I'm off next week and I will delete the app from my phone. Mm. And I'll just end up looking at a, on a web browser on my phone. Instead, which I, it doesn't mean I look at it less. And there's less sort of scrolly, scrolly. But, um, it very quickly becomes really quite ludicrous. I mean, James's story about being shouted at for not particularly enjoying working in a bookshop is a really good example. You know, it, when, when you're kind of removed from it, it just seems it's so bonkers and so obsessive and people mind so much about things that are none of their business that, you know... Because well, I, a, I remember a couple, of month, a couple of months ago now, I uh, put a picture on... In fact, I put two pictures on Twitter where my, my gran uh, was having a clear out of furniture and stuff in her house. And I, my, if I was more my wife than me, it was like, oh, what about the bureau desk that she's got? And I've always liked the look of that. Nobody else wants it. Oh, why did nobody else want it? Anyway, by the time we got it out of the house, it was so riddled with woodworm. It was quite clear mm. why no one wanted it. Anyway, I took it home. When I was pinged and I was self-isolating, I spent uh, several days painting it, repairing it, filling it, treating the woodworm and all that. Painted it uh, on the outside, uh, sprayed it copper on the inside. It's now a bar. It's in our kitchen now, and it's got a bar, you know, so it flaps down. Bar, lovely. Nice. Put, put, put some pictures on it saying, you know, this is, you know, what I've been doing, whatever. Loads of people, what a lovely thing. I remember my granny used to have one of those. What a great thing. How did you do it? And then suddenly it turned, and suddenly I was an evil destroyer of some uh, <laughs> clearly very valuable family heirloom. And how oh. could I? This was disgusting. I should have given it to someone who was going to look after it properly. And I just thought, why are you getting so cross about something that up until this point had been literally uh, being eaten by woodworm in a cupboard in my grand's house? And yet people felt they had to have a view on it. It's yes, incredible. life's too short. Yeah. Life is too short. Well, I'm glad we've... Uh, basically, I'm the only one wasting my life on Twitter. Maybe we should all just get off it. Anyway, if you've got views on that, tweet us at Times Radio. Uh, or text us 8722 with the word times. Now, this is an interesting thing uh, to talk about. Two-minute supermarket deliveries, which I knew nothing about this. Um, some uh, some of the team were talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Not living in London, I wasn't aware this is a thing, but now I've been out and about a bit more and I've seen the adverts on the tube. If you live in London, Manchester, Cambridge or Bristol, these things are now a thing. You could just be sitting at home and the adverts on the tube are like, do you want a bottle of Diet Coke? in two minutes, and someone will come and deliver it to you, Jace. Yeah, I mean, I've missed out on this too. Even even though I live uh, quite close to the middle of London, uh, it's above a Tesco. So this is completely <laughs> irrelevant to me because I, I never buy any groceries because I basically consider myself to live above a ginormous fridge. Uh, and whenever I want anything, I just uh, walk downstairs and enter Tesco, which is essentially my kind of paid-for fridge. What's the most times in a single day you've been down to the shop? I, I, I can go like six times in a day and um, the security guards always all always roll their eyes and laugh at me and they think I'm ridiculous and they actually tell me to buy all my groceries in one go but I refuse to because it's a nice break to go to Tesco for five minutes. Uh, what about you, India? I, mean, um, you... I, didn't, I didn't know it existed. These um, uh, things existed until this morning, actually, when I read Harry Wallop's piece in the Times. I'm completely appalled by them. <laughs> I'm completely appalled that they're, they're all in cities. Cities, by definition, 
have lots and lots of convenience shops and supermarkets and Tesco Expresses and goodness knows what. And, and I mean, how lazy do you have to be? How lazy do you have to be to go, I want a bottle of Diet Coke, but I can't be bothered to get off my backside, even though there's one in the shop 45 seconds down the road. I know I'll order one and get some poor sod to bring it to Is my it- front door. It's really... It's the end of days, actually. It's so awful. It is. I mean, so there are, so, there are loads. There's, there's Wheezy. Uh, there's millions of Getier, them. There's Gorillas. There's Deja. There's Zap. There's Jiffy. Uh, and they, um, they all vary. Some have, some have got free uh, delivery. Some you have to pay. So there's one of them. Some you have to pay up to like two ninety five for delivery. Uh, you can get popcorn delivered. You see, the assumption, it says in this, uh, Harry Wallop makes the assumption that I initially made, which is that this is for sort of um, people who've been um, consuming marijuana and are hungry. Uh, but, the, but, he <laughs> says, but he says in the piece that it's not, that, there's, that, that one of the apps, I can't remember which one, is very middle class and will deliver you, you know, apricot sorbet and yeah. biscuits and you to can go get... with your cheese. <laughs> yes, it's all, there are loads of them. So posh butchers, posh yeah. gin, champagne, um, plant-based burgers and all of that. But I just don't... <sighs> what is the matter? I mean, also... If there's one thing we've done enough of in the last 18 months, it's sitting at home. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Eating injudicious, fattening yeah. foodstuffs on a whim. So you've, not, you, you've, you've never felt the need to do this, Jane? No, although I do feel a bit kind of judged, not lest you be judged, because I'm not sure how much lazier it is of me to just never, ever buy lots of groceries at once and just go and get anything I want from Tesco immediately compared to ordering it. And I don't want to say that if I was in the position of being able to order things on an app, not living above a Tesco, that my Tesco-based lifestyle wouldn't have prepared me to do that and I would find the idea of going two minutes down the road to the shops outrageous. So I sort of, I can't really predict my own psychology on this one, so I don't end up being a hypocrite if I move house <laughs> and then realise spending my entire time ordering apricot sorbet on an app. But the point that you're, you're making is this is a further expansion of the slightly weird social phenomenon we've got going on at the moment where uh, people with, a, with disposable income basically think that other people... Is their jobs mm-hmm. to have a miserable time being on beck and call, mm. you know? But you know, but it's not just Amazon deliveries and all of that. It's now just you know, or, you know, all, all your just eats and your deliveries. It's now just no, it's, it's, bring an me an ice cream. Yeah, an individual tub of ice cream. Can you imagine what the delivery person is thinking? <laughs> and also, they, they presume, it, and, and and they've all got you know guarantees uh, of uh, how quickly they've got to get it to you uh, and all of that. And so it's not like your your one hour. Tesco delivery window. It's saying they're going to be there in ten minutes, and presumably, if you don't deliver your Clarence Core eggs within ten minutes, you'll be taken out and and well pelted with eggs or something. Oh, it's just, yeah, you've got yeah. an angry person standing on their doorstep saying, "I ordered my eggs twelve minutes ago." You're a disgrace. I mean, it's just insanity. I live twenty a twenty minute drive away from my nearest pint of milk and newspaper, and I'm you know that's fine. Unlike James, I do giant. Tesco shops um but you know it's so I don't know it's really decadent isn't it it's the it's the sort of Roman emperorish sort of I want my ice cream and I want it within 11 minutes it's, there's something <laughs> really gross about it it's awful it awful. is it is particularly and Jamie there's a similar you touched on this a bit in your column today uh where you're talking about sort of snooping and big tech and actually that sort of Where's my driver? Where's my delivery? Where's my uh, champagne flavoured ice cream? Yeah. It's I, all part of a bigger thing that you touched on in the, in the column of, of sort of, 
We're just snooping on each other all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the connections is I think they kind of being on the internet a lot kind of uh, or on your phone just kind of induces this kind of weird narcissism where your phone is just so desperately trying to provide you with things that you want to see all the time. What will interest you? What do you want to look at? What can we advertise to you that perfectly aligns with your interest? I wonder if we've kind of become a bit used to having this little world that is organised perfectly to sort every demands um, and we now kind of expect, you know, the real world to organise itself like that. Um, although the point, the, point of my, the, point, the point of my column was basically that the internet's also... Um, it's kind of gradual erosion of our standards of privacy and our, our, our rights to... Um, intrude in other people's lives has now kind of become part of the real world and my column was basically about how i think this is kind of increasing you know the more and more news stories about people filming each other and posting it online uh people filming their colleagues to try and get them in trouble and i just think um the kind of wider point of that column was that um we just think that we the internet has accustomed us to seeing into other people's private lives and judging them and now we kind of now this thing that's increasingly going into the real world and the whole um uber delivery thing really freaks me out because i hate how when you get um when you order a delivery or an Uber, you can see a satellite map with the person coming towards you. And it's like you have this kind of right to know exactly where they are. And um, then you have to kind of assign a little star rating at the end on an Uber. You can give them a patronized little kind of picture of like, you know, a diamond for excellent service. Or, you know, I think you can give them a little kind of squirty washing up bottle if their car was very clean. And I just find it very sort of, I just hate this sort of like intrusive and judgmental attitude, which I think is something really fostered by the Internet that is now kind of um, becoming more and more part of everyday life. What do you it's think? Very Lydia? creepy. Really I think it's creepy. really creepy. I think it's super creepy. I think seeing your driver approaching as a dot is super creepy. I think, I think judging, rating and judging and allocating points to people doing their job is really, yeah, super super creepy. And of course, yes, we've all become a nation of constant curtain twitches except it's much worse than curtain twitching because it's curtain twitching and opening the window and lobbing a bucket of poo over someone and then oh. retreating you know job well done it's yeah yeah it's it's not good um just funny uh india talking of buckets of poo uh you wrote the weekend about glamping oh yes <laughs> <laughs> and how it doesn't matter how fancy your yurt is or how many fairy lights you've got it's still just mucky camping it's a tent in a field and the farmer saw you coming um, and good for the farmer. Um, yes, I made the point that um, I think that middle class people really, really like feeling that they're bohemian. They like um, they like pretending they're not an accountant or a teacher or a doctor and that they're a kind of wild, unleashed person who lives in a field for two days and that, you know, cool things are going to happen. And actually, you're much better off just doing normal camping or, as I say in the column, going to a nice B&B. I feel really sorry for B&Bs because Airbnbs have kind of displaced them. And there are so many really charming, really affordable, marvellous B&Bs with delicious breakfasts and lovely places that are just, you know, just go to a B&B. Don't pretend glamping is a thing. It's not a thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I think the... Um, I, I mean, the only point of glamping is you're paying a lot of money to avoid the half-hour massive row that you have while putting the tent up. And then after that, it's just camping. After that, it's the same. Yeah. And no amount worse, of... Worse lose, actually. Basically, usually. basically, yeah. middle-class people are the worst, whether, whether they're on Twitter, or ordering ice cream online, <laughs> or glamping. Ordering ice cream. We I'm, are awful. <laughs> uh, somebody's messaged in to say, I've just looked up the inimitable, inimitable James Marriott online. It was confused to see that Wikipedia claims he's a former author and film critic who died in 2012. Apparently. It's got yes, your photo is, attached to it. That is not true, but it is, it is, it is confusing. People periodically text me about this. I, I am Touchwood still alive, did not die in 2012, and have not written a series of books about horror films. 
Uh, well, but, just but to clarify, got a new job. Can we talk about your yes, new job? Yes, you've got a new job, James. Oh, you yeah. You alluded to your new job in a, in a notebook, but you didn't say what it was. I know. Well, I was told not to make too big a deal out of it because I was talking oh. to a very sensible deputy commentator, and he said it's you young people, you know, always wanting to kind of go off and go, some news. And if you see this sort of thing that irritates me about Twitter. It was people. really annoying on Twitter when people say some personal news, and it's not yeah. professional <laughs> news. Yes, exactly. It's, or it's, it's job news. Or it's deeply minor uh, professional personal news. Personal news is, is I've got this thing on my backside, and I'm going to go to the dots. That's personal news that we don't want to know about. <laughs> yes, and you do not want to announce that on Twitter. Um, well, yeah. End up in even worse scrapes So anyway, anyway, because you haven't got Twitter to tell us, what is your personal news? Uh, I have finally, I finally uh, left the, the book's desk of the Times uh, and I'm now going to, I'm now going to write all the time, which is incredibly good news. Uh, I think That's probably for both the and book's desk You've abandoned me. the book's trolley. I've abandoned the book's trolley, yeah. The, the trolley that has really ruled my life for... Um, for I think like four years now, incredibly, I spent pushing that trolley around the office, unloading the books, putting the books in the shelves, taking the trolley back, <laughs> throwing away all the part, throwing away all the empty packages into the recycling. Uh, so yeah, I've kind of I've lost the manual labour aspect of my job actually. So, so Robbie Millen, the books editor, is now looking for a new trolley dolly. Yes, I know. Well, um, if you're very strong and like pushing a trolley a lot and unloading it. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Well, but presumably Robbie's got an app where he can track where you are with the trolley at all times. So yes, exactly. Yes, exa- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then he's trying to. Yeah, there's no, there's no function for me to bring him ice cream yet. India Night and James Merritt. Then, of course, you can read them in the Times every week. And, uh, well, you can read James in the Times, India in the Sunday Times. Get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is The Secrets of the Secret Service. 're listening to the red box podcast now it's time for my interview with Carol Lernick from the Washington Post. Now then, picture the Secret Service, and you're probably imagining smart, fit, highly trained, highly disciplined, highly serious men and women, dark suits, dark shades, whispering into their cuff. But a new book reveals that the people charged with protecting the President of the United States, the Vice President, their families and closest allies are at times... Well, they could barely look after themselves. From White House intruders breaking in thanks to faulty alarm systems to agents travelling abroad taking prostitutes back to their hotel room. Understaffed, under-resourced and under quite a lot of pressure. These are the secrets of the Secret Service and they've been revealed by the author Carol Lernig in her new book, Zero Failed, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. And Carol joins me now. Hi, Carol. Hello. How are you, Matt? 
I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you so much for joining us. So before we get to the juicy stuff of what uh, perhaps the Secret Service have been getting up to in more recent times, let's go right back to the beginning, if you like, and describe for us how the Secret Service came to be responsible for the president. It's such a fascinating story and and largely misunderstood by even Americans, right? Um, The Secret Service was created in 1865 just a few months actually after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. It was created not to protect presidents, but to protect our money, the paper currency floating around the United States in the middle of the, especially the latter half of the Civil War was phony. And it was threatening the actual economy of the country as it was trying to rebuild towards the end of the war. Very, very bad. The president wanted it fixed up. He was killed before um, his idea and his Treasury Secretary's idea was launched. The real way the Secret Service began protecting the lives of the president happened after the assassination of President McKinley, the third president who had been assassinated by a, a person walking up to them with a gun. And the idea was, we have to actually do something about this. We can't keep pretending that the president's safety is an afterthought. It has to be primary. And obviously people have got uh, clear ideas whenever they see the president now, whether it is in real life or in film. So it's that sort of coterie of of people uh, around him. How many people are in the Secret Service and who, who are they protecting? The Secret Service is enormous now, but it also has an enormous job and a not so enormous budget. So we think of the Secret Service, everyone does, because of movies, because of films, as the dark suited trim guys with the sunglasses and the earpieces around the president. There are 7,000 agents, officers, and other administrative employees who work for the Secret Service. Only a third of those are people that are agents, and only a small fraction of those are responsible for protecting the president. In addition to protecting the president, uh, the Secret Service protects grandchildren of the president, grand uh, stepchildren of the vice president, We make the Secret Service responsible for creating the security for all sorts of special events that could be the target of terrorism. We make them in charge of, still, their legacy responsibility, investigating counterfeiting, investigating financial crimes and cyber hacking. They're also responsible for protecting all foreign leaders who land in the United States, live here, and for those who visit for the United Nations General Assembly, 170 leaders who have to arrive safely and leave safely, thanks to the Secret Service. So it's a huge, it's a huge job that they've got to do. What you've discovered in your book is that, and after you know 20 years of work for the Washington Post and writing about eight different presidents, is that behind the scenes uh, they've got a huge job to do. It's not always brilliantly done. (laughs) That is well said, that last part. It's not always brilliantly done. They have too much to do. Even, uh, you know, senior presidential assistants that I interviewed, you know, cabinet members, deputy secretaries that I sat down with said, this agency cannot deliver on the mission that it is assigned to. 
Then there uh, is another problem. This word secret service sounds very alluring and mysterious, and there are secrets that the secret service has to keep. We don't want enemies of our country understanding where the president goes in the time of a nuclear attack or a bomb. We, we don't want people to understand how we protect him from anthrax or from gunshot. We want that to be a secret so it's not easier to kill him. However, the secrets of the Secret Service, that, that, that moniker, has been used by some arrogant subset of the Secret Service to cover up for their failures, to cover up for their, you know, bad boys gone wild behavior. And that arrogance, um, that party atmosphere that they believe they're entitled to, has really put a dent in the Secret Service's ability also to carefully, precisely execute its mission. I suppose you're right. The thing is, they are secrets in that you don't want everyone to know the exact time that the president's going to be at a place or what they're going to be eating or who they're going to be meeting. But they're not very sexy secrets. They're not, you know, they only are, are of limited value, you know, long term. It's not like military plans or spending plans and that sort of thing. So, <laughs> uh, so th yeah, you're right. It's sort of it's all tied up with the word secret, which makes it sound more exciting. So go on, then. let's get let's let's get down to the nitty gritty. Some of the examples of where this bad boy, you know, I think some of the American coverage of your book you know, talks about sort of a frat boy mentality. At times, reading what you've uncovered, it, it sounds like a sort of the UK would probably call it like a stag do gone wrong or, a, <laughs> or a, you know, a f freshers week uh, in a university. <laughs> They're basically, particularly, particularly sort of the Secret Service on tour. They sort of, they go travelling and, you know, all, all hell seems to break loose. Talk us through some of the examples that you, you came across. Yes, well, you know, it's funny. I love all the moniker, the names and nicknames for this behaviour. In, in the Secret Service, they refer to it as a couple of things. One, the Secret Circus, you know, when they go to town, it's not hard to find out where they're drinking that night. And also, wheels up, rings off. The idea that when Air Force One has either not arrived or is just departing, the men of the Secret Service, overwhelmingly the men, uh, have a chance to meet a lot of women and party hard. The agency has had a real party hard reputation for decades. Female agents reached out to me during this period to say, you know, this has been going on since the 1930s, the, the hard drinking ways of the agency. But let me give you a couple examples. When the Secret Service got famously caught red-handed in Cartagena in 2012, that's actually when I entered the picture. I was just assigned to help figure out what in the heck went wrong, why were a dozen Secret Service agents flown home from a trip with President Obama? Why were they flying the opposite direction the president was back home under investigation for bringing prostitutes back to their rooms and getting soused uh, on that night before the president arrived? Keep in mind, they're supposed to be getting ready for his arrival and helping secure the city for that purpose. But instead, they are meeting a lot of new women, paying some of them a lot and drinking bottle after bottle of vodka. When they get busted for this publicly, the director of the Secret Service goes on to the Capitol Hill to testify before our Congress to say he is shocked, just shocked that this kind of gambling is going on in the casino. But agents told me this was no surprise. And what I learned for the purposes of the book, Matt, was that this had been going on not just for decades, in the weeks before Cartagena, you know, was uncovered by reporters like our paper at our paper. 
In the weeks before, there had been other horrific episodes. An agent who was on the president's trip to Asia got so drunk that he fell sort of exhausted, unconscious in a brothel. And he, and he didn't arrive and didn't catch the plane in time to hop on the rest of the trip, the tour with the president around to a couple other Asian countries. Wow. A, se a senior supervisor had to stay behind with him, jeopardizing really the trip because every single person has an assignment, has an expertise. They had to ship in a whole new group of people to help replace this one brothel visitor. I also learned that in the weeks before the event in Cartagena, the Secret Service director had been alerted and that they had found a member of the president's detail. President Obama's inner circle of his detail had been using presidential trips to hook up with strangers on a special sort of secret app for swingers. So meeting other couples he didn't know for sex in various cities. And what's so striking about this is the idea of using a secretive app to meet strangers randomly for swinger events in hotel rooms when you're on the road with the president makes you extremely vulnerable to blackmail and it makes the president vulnerable. So. You know, while the director was saying, I never heard of any of this thing before, he very well had. And I suppose, you you know, these people are carrying guns in lots of cases. They've got their security passes on them. And particularly if they find themselves in hotel rooms with strangers, there is a genuine security threat. It's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of salacious, outrageous revelations, but there's a, there's, a, there's a genuine security aspect to this. But it's not just when they go abroad, is it? Some of the stories that you've uncovered uh, <laughs> in your book, Carol, detailing what's gone on right in the White House. Now, people would think that the White House, the grounds of the White House, must be the most secure few acres on the planet, potentially. No, but I've, I've been to the White House once, the palaver to get in uh, with passports and this and that and check your bags and security. And, and yet to just repeated stories of, of intruders managing to get in. A couple who managed to uh, not only sneak in, but attend a dinner with Barack Obama. Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. Barack Obama, when he sat down in, I believe it was Brussels in 2014 or 2015 with the then director, Julie Pearson, she was alerting him to another security gaffe with agents getting drunk in, on his trip to the Netherlands, and they passed out in the hallway of the hotel where the president was going to be staying. But as I say, she was explaining to him, hey, I'm really sorry about this. want you to know before it shows up in the papers. And he reads her the riot act and says, let me list for you all of the ways the Secret Service has effed up while I've been president. This is not a Barack Obama problem, he says to her. This is a Secret Service problem. And among the events are the ones you just mentioned. A reality TV or a, a wannabe reality TV couple, they want, they're auditioning for a show. They find a way into the White House and slip past the palaver you mentioned, they just, they just, they just explain, oh, well, we're very well dressed we're invited to the party. There must be a mistake on the list and they get in and they get their picture taken. They aren't even screened properly. It's a huge embarrassment, but other people get in <laughs> in ways that are very much like a burglary in daylight and sometimes at nighttime. The first most spectacular one, Matt, is in 
2014, September, it happened to be my anniversary dinner when I had a, my phone basically exploding on the desk of, of the dinner table where we were eating because every source I had was letting me know a man had just broken in, jumped over the gates in plastic crocs with a limp from his war injury in Iraq. He's a, a retired veteran. He runs from a public sidewalk over the fence across the north grounds and strides right into the front door of the white house in 29 seconds wow there are more than a 150 people who work for the secret service that night that are responsible for the security there officers emergency response technicians there's a canine team there are two canine teams there are counter assault agents on on deck there are supervisors there's a command center multiple rings of security every single one of them fails and he gets inside everyone promises after that that horrible and and humiliating day that this will never happen again that they're going to raise the fence they're going to amplify the number of people on deck on deck they're going to make sure there is no possible way but i know you're going to be shocked when i tell you <laughs> it happens again <laughs> weeks into donald trump's presidency it's march 2017 he's upstairs and as he often is on a friday night watching television he's watching the news seeing how he's being covered riveted by that coverage Meanwhile, a man who's delusional thinks he needs to reach the president to tell him something. A couple of alarms sound. Officers from the Secret Service come running and they can't find him. And they presume that it's a false alarm. But in that night, this young man, Jonathan Tran, wanders the grounds for 17 minutes uninterrupted. He's so comfortable that he sits down on a barrier and ties his shoes casually. He walks over to the east side of the mansion and jiggles a door, peers in the windows, can't get in, wanders around to the south grounds and the entryways where there are 12 different ways to get into the property and into the president's residence going up the steps and around the way. And miraculously, an officer does find him at that point and says, who goes there? Stop. The man says, I jumped over the fence. It's just sort of stunning. Every single, again, security la layer was on the fritz. Alarms, sensors, cameras, lights, all of them had a failure in them so that the officers couldn't find who they were looking for. They couldn't find the burglar at the White House. And then the last thing that fails is the officer who actually detains Jonathan Tran, his radio isn't working properly, and so he cannot call for backup. He thinks he's calling for backup, but none of his fellow officers know what's happening or know where he is. You've just been detailing to us the extraordinary stories of what goes on abroad with the prostitutes and the brothels and even the number of people who've managed to get into the grounds of the White House and get very close to even meeting Barack Obama at one point. The real sense, listening to you speak, but also reading uh, your book, is that you're shocked by this, that what started out as you were put on this story by the Washington Post to find out what happened in Colombia. You've, you've spoken to loads of people in the Secret Service, uh, in the governments, both current and former. And you seem genuinely shocked that this is the state of the agency that's charged with protecting the President of the United States of America. 
You hit the nail on the head. I I thought I really understood so much about the Secret Service after, you know, especially to Cartagena, a series of, of horrific conduct cases and security breaches that I covered in the next two years. I thought I really understood how upsetting and, and troubled the agency was. But as I looked deeper, I realized these weren't outlying events. They were not one-offs or two-offs or three-offs. They were part of a broken culture, a broken culture that the Secret Service has covered up for their own point of burnishing the brand and in their own embarrassment, and also so directors can keep their jobs and supervisors can keep their jobs. But I also found this culture was broken because the employees, the frontline agents, the frontline officers are desperately disappointed with their own bosses. They want this to be resolved. They feel overwhelmed and under-resourced. And they also feel like the promotion culture at the service is one that rewards good old boys who, who help cover up the problems as opposed to really addressing and fixing them. And so, yes, I was stunned to find out there was a swinger on the president's detail. I was, and that he was using presidential trips for that purpose. I was stunned that all of the security failures that happened right under my nose that had been carefully concealed from me, from Congress, and even from the White House and the president. And you've talked about how it's understaffed, it's under-resourced, they're working long hours. Is it part of the sort of unspoken deal that, look, we know you're working long hours, you're from, away from your family a lot of the time, you're under pressure, so we're just going to turn a blind... When we would go abroad, we'll turn a blind eye, let your hair down, that's part of the deal. <laughs> I don't know that supervisors ever say it exactly that way, but it's the unspoken rule, essentially, or the unspoken uh, mantra, uh, which is, hey, guys are working too hard. They're giving up their wife, their anniversary with their wife. Some agents I met had had to skip being the best man at their best friend's wedding because of an assignment that came up at the last minute. They're giving up so much. They're standing in stairwells overnight. They, Because of that sacrifice, some of them, and not all of them, let's be clear, some of them have taken... Uh, it as a given that they should be allowed to party hard. The problem is it's a huge risk to national security. And also, crucially, I mean, we've all partied hard at various times. I wouldn't necessarily want to be holding a gun charged with protecting the president, you know, where split-second decisions are crucial the next day. And I suppose that's the real concern, isn't it? The overworked, overtired, overpartied Secret uh, Service agents. When split seconds really matter, it's sort of, I mean, it's a good uh, surprise, but it's sort of a surprise we haven't seen something more serious happen in terms of, you know, someone getting through protection, getting through to the president. Oh, I'm so glad you said it exactly that way. You totally understand what we're dealing with here. I mean, the reason President Kennedy was killed is attributable to two or three different factors, but one of them has to be considered uh, as a serious contributing factor, and that is that they were out late at night, many of the agents who were with him in Dallas, and they were drinking until two and five in the morning. So as, as Earl Warren, the chief justice who ran the Warren Commission that investigated Kennedy's death, 
said in the hearing to the director of the Secret Service, you cannot tell me that a man who has stayed up all night and has had a few drinks is going to react in the same quick manner as someone who got a good night's sleep. And to be clear, the drinking sometimes is to the degree that it's just laughable. I mean, this number two agent on the president's detail was caught driving home from a big party, retirement party for one of his friends. He was in a car driven by a colleague. Both of them had had plenty, had been served plenty at this bar, an Irish bar in downtown Washington. They drove back together to the White House through an active bomb investigation scene on the side of the White House grounds. They appear to have not looked at their phones and Blackberries to know that that was happening, though it was their responsibility to know the security at the secret at the at the White House complex and were able to then drive home allowed by their own colleagues after they were questioned about whether they'd been drinking and they admitted that they had. This is what happened. But there's no question that that kind of behavior has an impact on security. And the reason I'm so glad you raise it, Matt, is agents said to me over and over again in a pleading way, we are worried. You've got to do something. We've got to do something. We think our president is going to get killed on our watch. So I suppose finally, that's my last question really, is is how do you fix this? There have been other organisations, both you know, state and private around the world, who've had similar problems. Is it just a question of money and resources and you do have more bodies available so that people aren't as overstretched? Is it a culture thing? Do you need fewer men, maybe some gender parity in the hiring decisions? That sort of thing? What's your view on how you fix this problem to protect the current president and the presidents of the future? More women would surely help. And President Obama actually said that to the director, Julie Pearson, when he was with her in Brussels. He said, you need more women. And she said, she, you know, look, look, boss, I'm working on it. But another thing that would help a heck of a lot would be somebody from outside the Secret Service or someone inside the Secret Service who cares enough to crack down on this behavior. The cover-up that is the reflex of the Secret Service is what's killing the standards. When you have a director who says, I'm going to keep, you know, to himself, I'm going to keep my job by pretending nothing bad is happening and not, and not being clear with folks, you're destined for failure. But unfortunately, what Julie Pearson found, she was the director who came up and, and tried to clean up this bad boy behavior. What she found is she was sabotaged by her peers, sabotaged by men who didn't like the crackdown on bad behavior. She she reassigned some male supervisors who weren't able to kind of control their teams. And when she did that, they came for her. They tried to do everything they could to leak information that would embarrass her and, and ultimately contribute to her firing. It's an extraordinary uh, situation. It's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. That's Carol Lunig there, a Washington Post journalist. Her book, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, is out this week. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?